us, the church, speak to us, form us, lead us, dwell in us, teach us today how to love as Jesus loves, to welcome the stranger, heal the sick, and care for the poor, to bear good news, build bridges, and bring your people home. For Christ in us is the hope of glory. May your perfect will prevail in us this day. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're continuing our series called With, and if you are joining us for the first time, uh, here's what we've been talking about. At the core of our faith is the belief that Jesus did not come to help us get to heaven, but to help us get to God. We are made for God's pleasure, to love God and to be loved by God, to serve God, to love and serve each other. We are made for God. We are made for love. Jesus did not come to establish a religion, but to tear down religion as the means to get to God and to replace religion with himself. And so we believe that the way to God is not through religion, but through a relationship. So we've been asking through this series, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? And what if the way that we are relating to God is not actually what God desires? And so this invitation is for each of us perhaps to reimagine the way that we relate to God. Jesus said that uh, he came that we might have life and that we might have it to the full, abundant Meaningful, satisfying life. Does that describe your relationship with God? Abundant, satisfying life. Because if it doesn't, and what you're experiencing is something less than that, then perhaps we need to reimagine the way that we relate to God and rethink this relationship. Now, this series was inspired by the writings of Sky Jathani. Uh, He has done a masterful job, I think, of describing four basic postures towards God, four ways that we relate to God, um, none of which are actually what he intended. And so if you'd like to learn more, you can listen to our previous messages on our website at onetrinitychurch.org. But let me describe it briefly to you. There are four basic postures. The first is living life under God And in this posture, I see God as an authority figure. And if I obey his commands, then I will be rewarded. And if I disobey his commands, I will be punished. Okay, so that's somebody who kind of thinks about living life under God. There's some people who live life over God. And if that's the case, then I see God as an advisor. And I look to God for practical wisdom and principles to apply to my life, but I'm still in control. I am still in the driver's seat. Some people uh, think primarily about what they can get from God, and if that's the case, then I see God as a kind of divine butler (laughs) or a cosmic therapist, and God's primary uh, purpose is to bless me and to make my life better, like some kind of holy vending machine. Some people live life for God. And in this case, we kind of see God as a a motivational speaker, a cheerleader, somebody who says, you are a somebody, and you are powerful, and you are a world changer, 
And what I crave most is a sense of purpose and to feel significant. And I hide this under the facade of living for God. It sounds very noble, right? But in the end, people who just live for God, are they, they end up loving mission more than they actually love God. They love the feeling of being useful and significant and important. And it's very seductive because it sounds so good. Oh, you're amazing. You just live life for God. I wish I could be like you. Well, yes, not everybody can be like me. Right? It's very seductive. And none of these four postures represent the kind of relationship that God desires to have with us. All of them, in some sense, are an attempt to use God for our own ends rather than seeing a relationship with God as an end in itself. And we were not created to live life under God or over God or to think about what we can get from God or even how we can live for God. We were created to live life with God. With God. Now let me point something out here, and that is that no other living thing, no other living creature has this unique relationship with God. Human beings are made in God's image, and relationship is at the core of the cosmos. God the Father with God the Son, with God the Holy Spirit, and human beings, and only human beings, are invited into this very special community in that way. And so the book of Revelation gives us a sneak peek into God's ultimate plan for the world. We read that God's dwelling place will be among his people and God himself will be with us and will be our God. This is what is in store for us. This is where our Heavenly Father is taking his children. We were created for life with God. And we can start living into that reality right now. So last week, Christine shared a way to read Scripture with the intention to know God. And not for practical advice, not for to figure out how to appease God so we can get what we want, but to experience life with God, to know Him, to enjoy Him for who He is, to hear His voice, and to be changed by our time with Him. And another way, and we're going to talk about this today, another way that we experience God is in community with other believers. This is a picture from our men's retreat. In community with other believers is how we experience God. A couple of weeks ago, I suggested that the goal of our faith is not to have a personal relationship with God. The goal of our faith is not to have a personal relationship with God. It's to have a communal relationship with God. Now, so that might strike you as strange. It might even strike you as heretical. I mean, isn't that what we've been told our whole lives? Is that Christianity is all about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Would it surprise you to know that we don't see that phrase anywhere in Scripture? The idea of a personal relationship with God is actually a byproduct of our highly individualistic Western culture where the emphasis is on me 
and my needs and my preferences and my unique brand and my way. And we are used to talking in personal terms, right? I have a personal trainer. I have a personal bank account. I have a personal property. I have a personal assistant. We have imported this language into our faith. I have a personal relationship with God. But outside of our context, we find most of the world is made up not of individualistic cultures, but collectivist cultures. It's not about me, it's about we, it's about the community. And this was the case in Jesus' day and continues to be true of Middle Eastern cultures today. And so our life with Christ is communal, not personal or private or individual. Whenever the scriptures speak about believers, they are always part of a community. Christianity is about a church relationship with Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that, uh, 12 that we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. One body. I love how Chad Bird uh, elaborates on this. He points out this out. He says, when we pray, we are taught to pray communally. The only prayer Jesus taught us to pray begins, our Father, not my Father. No one ever prays alone. We pray in Jesus, through the Spirit, to the Father, in a vast concert with all other believers. Me and Jesus' prayers are impossible. There are only us and Jesus' prayers. Us being that innumerable throng of saints from the foundation of the world until now, whose unheard voices join ours in an ongoing prayer to our Father. You never pray alone. You're always praying with Jesus, through the Spirit, to the Father, with all the other saints who have ever come and ever will be. He goes on to say, when we read the Bible, we read communally. The Bible is a communal product. It took the work of many writers, prophets, eyewitnesses, scribes, translators, and printers to produce the Bible that you hold in your hands. And so when we read, even when we read, you are reading with the voices of preachers and teachers and parents from over the years who have guided your knowledge and your assumptions and beliefs. And so ideally, we should be reading the scriptures with others, in groups, in classes, with an eye to the wisdom of the past and the voices of our brothers and sisters who study it with us. We are called into a living, active, worshiping community. We eat the the communal meal of His body and blood. We sing together. We pray together. We confess together. We grieve and we heal and eventually die together. And Jesus gives us pastors and brothers and sisters in the faith and children to teach and elders to emulate. And even... God even gives us less than likable people to love as those for whom Christ died. Chad Bird concludes, he says, Christianity is not a solo endeavor. Heaven forbid that I should have a personal relationship with Jesus for I know what would happen. I would end up, in my mind, reshaping my personal Jesus into a strikingly familiar image The image of me. We know God best in community. 
Because if Christianity is all about a personal relationship with God, then gathering with the body becomes optional. It's about, if it's all about Jesus and me, then when I come, I don't have to engage with other people. We're all doing our own thing. All these people, Jesus and me. We just happen to be in the same room. But if it's about a communal relationship with God, if that's what we're pursuing, then I have to be here. And when I'm here, I have to engage. It's not an accident that the people of God were told to give Jesus the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, not God with me. God with us. We cannot fulfill God's purpose for our lives. We cannot express the full extent of our humanity if we're not purposely and consistently living in authentic community with others. Jesus taught that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. How can you do that if you're not in community? You just cannot do it. It's impossible. You cannot live out God's basic commandment for all people if you're not gathered like this, if you're not in community. Now, our goal is to pursue a communal relationship with God, but that there always must still be a personal dimension, a personal dimension to our faith. Jesus often spent time with the Father, not alone, because God is always in relationship, God, the Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it was a personal encounter and there must be a personal uh, dimension to our faith. I love, personally, I love spending time with God in solitude. It's one of the ways that I recharge. And for me, it's kayaking on the ocean with um, dolphins or sea lions just kind of like swimming around me, or hiking in the hills. And the sound of the waves or the smell of the trees, the wind in my face, the sun on my skin. God speaks to me so clearly during those times. And I enjoy God. And I delight in God. And God delights in me. And we talk to each other. Now, for others, maybe it's um, reading God's word early in the morning when everybody's still sleeping on your knees by the bed or curled up in your favorite chair. Some people commune with God while they're gardening. Or maybe when they're swimming, Jeff, our associate pastor here, he, he swims, and that's when he meets with God. We're creating art. Uh, and in a bit busy and digital uh, world that's full of noise, it is more important than ever that you know how to unplug. You know how to go off the grid and spend time with Jesus. Last December, I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote in his influential book, Life Together. He said this, Whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. Such people will only do harm to themselves and to the community because alone you stood before God when God called you. Alone you had to obey God's voice. Alone you had to take up your cross and struggle and pray. And alone you will die and give an account to God. You cannot avoid yourself for it is precisely God who has called you out. If you do not want to be alone, you are rejecting Christ's call to you and you can have no part in the community of those who are called. Francis Chan goes a step further. He says, gathering believers who don't spend time alone with God can be a very dangerous thing. He says, I want to know the thoughts of God. I want to gather with people who have been reading God's words, people who have prayed and interacted with Him. I want to fellowship with those who fellowship with God. I couldn't care less if you have a doctorate in theology or 60 years of life experience. I would rather talk to a 15-year-old who has been in the presence of God. 
We spend time with God. Listen very carefully. We spend time with God personally so that we have something to offer the community. Our goal should be to pursue a communal relationship with God, but for that to happen, there must be a personal dimension to our faith. You understand? Yes? So, what do we do when we come together? How do we experience life with God in community? It starts with understanding that simply occupying the same space does not mean that we are spending time with God or with each other. You can be with somebody and not actually be with somebody. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? You are physically present, but you are not emotionally present. You are not mentally present. You're not spiritually present. And so what does it look like to be fully present when we come together? Well, Scripture gives us some clues of what spiritual community looked like in the early church. In 1 Corinthians 14, we read this. When you come together, each of you, now this is now speaking to individuals, right? Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation or a tongue or interpretation, and everything must be done so that the church, the community, may be built up. When you come together, every one of you has something to offer from God for the benefit of others. What did you come with today? If this were like a spiritual potluck, what did you come to share? Or did you come empty-handed? So we spend time with God personally so that we have something to offer the community. In Colossians 3.16, we read this, Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This year on our men's retreat, we did something different. Typically on a retreat, you always bring a speaker and you, you, you pay them a, a, some kind of honorarium or bring in a speaker and they, they, speak, they do all the teaching. We changed that this year. We said we have a lot of men in the church that can teach each other, that have the gift of teaching, that are respected. And so instead, we had five different men from within our church. Each take one session, and you saw in the video, teach one another. This wasn't because we didn't have money to bring in a speaker. It's because we believe fundamentally this is actually the type of community that we're supposed to be building in the church. We teach one another. And this is a chance for us to move into that uh, culture, that, into that reality. But perhaps the best picture of being with God in community is a practice that used to be common but has fallen out of favor. Now, if you were to ask different people what, a, what is a Christian meeting supposed to look like, you would get some different answers. An evangelical Christian might say, well, when you, a Christian meeting should look like having um, preaching and singing. That's kind of what it looks, preaching and singing, right? And a charismatic Christian might say, um, well, okay, there's, there is preaching, but it's mostly it's about worship and praise, and it's about uh, exercising miraculous gifts. We want to see signs and wonders among us. Right? An Anglican or a Catholic um, might say that the centerpiece of a Christian meeting is the Eucharist, or what we call communion, partaking of the bread and the wine, and everything uh, kind of comes towards that. That's the centerpiece. But very few Christians would tell you 
that the dominant feature of Christian worship is a meal, a shared meal. But that was actually the case in the early church. That was the centerpiece. Not the praise, not the worship, not the teaching, but the meal is what brought people together. For the early Christians, worship began with and centered around a shared meal called an agape feast. The word agape means love, specifically the uh, unconditional love of God. The agape feast, or the love feast. And nearly all biblical scholars, Catholic, Protestant, liberals, conservatives, will all agree that the New Testament worship consisted of the love feast, followed by preaching, and then the Eucharist. And it was more than just bread and wine. It was a full-on meal. And it was part of worship. It wasn't like the pre-worship. It was worship. And meals back then were not like today, where we eat on the run, you know, um, at maybe at your desk, at work, or in the car. Um, you know, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, or KFC, I guess they don't call it Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore, KFC, uh, is not very easy to eat in the car, right? And so what they did, they, start, they started marketing these little, like, pods that go in the cup holder in your car, and instead of, like, a big piece of fried chicken, it's like chicken fries, you know, it's like, they're like, so you can, so they're easy to eat, because this is the culture that we're in, you know, you, I want convenient, I want to eat it on the run, right? Hot pockets in the morning before you go, or Pop-Tarts, this has become our breakfast. But at that time, there was no such thing as fast food. You took your time. Meals were a time to connect, and the Agape feast or love feast was a time to connect with God and with each other. In Acts 2.42, we read that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the breaking of bread is a reference to that love feast. They dedicated themselves to this. And the breaking of bread is the love feast, the agape feast. And we read that they did it often, even daily they did this. So why, if this was so common, did people stop doing it? Well, over the years, the love feast started to become more about the food than the fellowship. Does that sound kind of like churches sometimes when we gather? It became more about the food. Well, what are we going to eat today? Right? And it became an excuse for gluttony and drunkenness. People would get drunk on the, on the wine before anybody else got there. And, 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 of course, drunkenness leads to often very sinful acts, right? And it became an opportunity for the rich to flaunt their wealth. Oh, look at the food that we're eating. And then they would eat it before anybody else got there anyway. Oh, you missed it. It was amazing. Right? So good. Oh, yeah. And since the practice was being abused in that way, the church leaders began to drop the love feast from worship and just leaving only the Eucharist. And we see hints of this abuse in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians 11, instructions about the Lord's Supper. Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, your love feasts, do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. People are coming in, it's like, I don't want to sit with so-and-so. Right? There are divisions between people. 
No doubt, there have to be some different. He's being sarcastic here. No doubt, there have to be some differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? <laughs> Sometimes we think of like scripture as being so poetic, but he's just being so direct. Don't you guys have homes to eat in? Right? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? He says. Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Then he talks about the Eucharist. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For you is plural. This is for you. Not singular, but plural. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. Whenever you, plural, drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you, plural, eat this bread and drink this cup, you, plural, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, now, and here is the verse that we often take out of context. We don't understand. Now he talks about what it, what it means to... to Partake of the bread and drink of the cup. And some of you remember this verse. It says, don't do it in an unworthy way. And we misunderstand what this verse means. Right? He says, whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without recognizing the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that is why many among you are weak and sick. A number of you have fallen asleep, meaning died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. If you can't wait, have a snack, so that you can wait for everyone. Now, when Paul says... Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord, and that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat, before they eat of the bread and drink in the cup. He is not saying that the love feast and the Eucharist are only for believers. If you were a guest, you could partake. What he is saying is that when we come to worship, we come as one body, one people. We are not a bunch of individuals each pursuing a personal, private relationship with God. We are a family, and we are pursuing a communal relationship with God. In other words, we don't come to eat. We come to connect. And we come to live out the great commandment to, to 
love one another as ourselves. What does it mean to eat of the, uh, of, of the bread and drink of the cup in, in a worthy manner? It means we have consideration for one another. We have love for one another, for our brother, for our sister. It means we're committed to loving each other. So when he's talking about sinning against the body, he means this body. Don't come and into this fellowship and pretend to be one by eating a meal together when in your heart you harbor hatred or bitterness or resentment against somebody else. If you're not right relationally, you are sinning against the body which Jesus died for. We read in Ephesians that Jesus loved the church and died for the church. We are sinning against God. We are sinning against each other when we fail to come in a spirit of love. And this is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are offering your gift at the altar in worship, and there you remember it, before you bring your gift, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. If we harbor bitterness or resentment against a brother or sister in the faith, if we refuse to forgive, if we've been lying to our loved ones, if we are in any way sinning against the body of the Lord, the church, our spiritual family, then we are eating of the bread and drinking of the cup in an unworthy manner. And we have to make things right. We have to reconcile. We confess our sins, ask for forgiveness, work to repair our relationships. Then when we come together... We come in a spirit of joy and thanksgiving and celebration and we're ready to worship the Lord. So the love feast is a picture of the banquet table of God. It reminds us how we are to relate to uh, God and to each other, not under, not over, not from, not for, but with. And that's what you do when you sit and you eat together. You are with others. Eating together is unifying. As we say around here, it's peacemaking in action. We lay down our weapons to eat. The love feast reminds me that I am my brother's keeper. Not God with me, but God with us. And so, we are going to revive this tradition at this church of having a love feast. Uh, In fact, uh, John Wesley, to whom we trace our roots, along with the Methodists and the Pentecostals and Salvation Army, the Church of God, and more than 30 other denominations, John Wesley was a huge fan of the love feast, and he, he instructed Christians' churches to make it a regular practice. He loved it. And beginning today, we will hold a love feast on the first Sunday of every month, the same day that we take communion together. So the Lord's Supper will be a true supper, a true meal. Um, And we're going to take communion together at the end of service. And then we are going to invite everyone to go over to our fellowship hall, to our family center, to enjoy a meal together. And this is going to be different, okay, than the meals that we are used to. Let me make this clear. This is not like any meal that we've had before, where it's kind of like a potluck or a you know, we cater, you just kind of go get your food, sit down, eat your food, and go home, right? It's not like that. It's worship. It's worship. There'll be uh, different elements. During the love feast, we're going to pray. We're going to read scripture. We're going to sing. Sometimes we will share testimonies. We're going to talk to each other. We're going to celebrate the life that we have in Christ. And we're going to praise God for what he's doing in our lives. 
The love feast is an opportunity for us to experience life with God in community over a meal. It's going to feel different. And it's going to be a little different every time. You know, we're going to experiment with different things. But the goal, because we don't want it to become some empty ritual. And so to keep it fresh, right, we'll, we'll try different things. But here are some things that you should know. Every time we have one of these love feasts, it will be sponsored by a different family in the church, or perhaps a couple of families or a group within the church. Um, not from our church budget, but people will sponsor a meal. Often a family might say, we, want, we would like to sponsor a meal in honor of a special event um, in our lives, like the birth of a child, or um, to remember a loved one who's passed away, uh, or to celebrate somebody's anniversary, or graduation, or retirement. Say, so we'd like to sponsor uh, this month's love feast in honor of this, this occasion. And I hear that this is very common in the Jewish uh, synagogues. This is what they do. Um, and different families take turns sponsoring the meal. And you can sponsor a meal anonymously if you want. Um, and if you sponsor a meal, I want you to know that's your only responsibility for that month. <laughs> you don't need to set up the tables. You don't need to clean up. Right? Your generosity is more than enough, and we, we thank you for that. Um, now, we have a few different set menus to choose from. We found some local caterers that can give us a good deal on the amount of food that we require. Uh, we will need some men um, to volunteer to set up and take down tables uh, each time, and some people who will help set up food and clean up afterward. Now, what I suggest is that we have the same team every time. Why is that? Because, first of all, we don't have to hunt around every month and ask, well, who's doing this? But secondly, because once you kind of figure this out and have a routine, it's much faster for the same people to do it because they know what to do. But if we have different people every time, you've got to teach them, you have to train them every single time how to do this thing. And it's much easier to, and specifically men. Guys, um, we got muscles, right? 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 <laughs> so we could do this. We can do this. So specifically men, I like, I like for us to take charge uh, of that. Um, the format for each meal will be a little bit different, um, but it will always start with prayer, some kind of reading. Remember, this is a continuation of worship, and our hope is that these meals become one of our highlights as a family. It's something that we look forward to every month. Oh, it's the first Sunday, love feast time, right? Something that we look forward to. Now, for today's love feast, we are going to try something a little uh, different. It's inspired um, by something called the Human Library Project. It originated in Copenhagen uh, as a way to help people confront their own prejudices and break down barriers. Now, at a human library event, this is so amazing when I read about this, people volunteer to become books, right? And they make their experiences open and available. And readers are encouraged to borrow one of these books, right? And you spend time asking these, this person questions uh, very freely, and you'll get honest answers in returns. There's no judgment, and no questions are off limits. The volunteers are often people who are commonly misunderstood or marginalized because they believe differently or they live differently or they look differently. And the idea is to create a safe space for conversations that challenge our stereotypes and prejudices through dialogue. So I can borrow a refugee, and I get some time with them just to sit down. Say, tell me about your experience. What is that like? Or you can borrow a homeless person. Or you can borrow somebody who's deaf and blind. Or somebody who's covered in tattoos and piercings. A body modified person. Um, some of the other people that, that you might 
uh, borrow are somebody who's been sexually abused, uh, a young single mom, somebody who's an alcoholic, um, bipolar, brain damaged, HIV, autism, a soldier with PTSD, a Muslim, somebody who perhaps was molested, uh, ADHD, somebody who's unemployed. What's that like? Can you imagine what would happen if people in our community came together with this spirit of curiosity and non-judgment instead of just stereotyping people? These are real people with names and stories. We had conversations with them. I love this idea. I think we should sponsor one in our city. Trinity Church sponsors the Human Library event on a certain night. And one of them is a pop star turned pastor. Some of you are like, uh, you don't know me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's part of my story. What if we came together, and especially when our gatherings like this, with a posture of curiosity? I have conversations with a lot of people. And you know what I've noticed? I take note of the people that ask you questions about you. 90% of my conversations are all about the other person. Because I, I, I am curious. I do ask questions. But I've noticed not a whole lot of people ask me about me. Now, after church, a whole bunch of you are going to come by. Albert, tell me about you. And I'll be like totally overwhelmed. But are you curious about other people? Why should we be curious about other people? Because every person is made in the image of God. Imagine what it would be like if we remembered that. If we were aware of that reality, every conversation, every encounter with another human being, this person is made in the image of God. And what if we were so attentive and so prayerful and so loving in our conversations with people that we could actually see the image of God in them? Even though that image has been corrupted by sin, but we see it. We see ways in which God is working in their lives. What a powerful way to engage with people. What a powerful way to do life with God. To see as he sees. So here's what we're going to do today. During our meal, we're going to read each other by asking questions about each other's life story. Um, Now, be respectful. You know, if somebody doesn't feel like answering a particular question, that's okay. Don't be like really intrusive or nosy. There may be a time when we do a human library project and people say, I'll be a book and any question is okay. Nothing is off. That would be amazing, right? Veronica's like nodding her head like, yeah, I'll do it. Right? Because she has an amazing story and she's very open about it. Very open about it, right? But today, um, be a little gentle, but, but don't be too gentle. Let's, let's ask some questions. Like, tell me about you. I'm so interested in learning. We're going to read each other. We are going to be fully attentive. We're going to listen for how God has been at work in somebody's life and how he might be speaking to them, challenging them or revealing himself to them. And we want to listen so attentively that at the end of our time together, we can say, I see God in you. I see God in you. Thank you for telling me your story. So, in conclusion, what if? What if the way that we are relating to God is not what he intended? What if 
The aim of our faith is not to have a personal relationship with God, but a communal relationship with God. And what if our meals together can become a form of worship, a way to experience life with God together, a way to live out the great commandment to love God and love each other and a way to connect on a deep soul So I want to encourage you to stay. If you had other lunch plans and you can cancel them, stay. If you were thinking, well, I wanted to go to a hometown buffet, you know, stay, right? Stay. Stay with us. Eat. Connect. We're going to transition now to uh, the beginning of this love feast. This this Eucharist, the communion here, will flow into our meal. So we're going to partake of the elements together as the opening to our meal. And we're going to worship, and then we're going to close the service, and then we're all going to move over to the, uh, uh, to the gym. And we're going to begin our meal there. Now, after we have started our meal, then women who are interested in being part of this women's meeting to learn about the women's ministry can take your food, and you can go to the kindergarten room and, the, and you'll be able to continue the meal over there and hear about these things. But we're going to begin it together. Okay? So if I could ask um, those who are helping with communion today to come forward. And we'll begin our meal together. Let's pray. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the wine, he took the cup, and he did the same thing. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant given for you on behalf of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And every time that we partake of the bread and the wine, we proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus until he comes. This is the hors d'oeuvre. This is the appetizer for the greater banquet yet to come. And when we sit together at our table, partake in the love feast together we are proclaiming that we are one body help us to be present for each other to experience life (coughs) with God in community this is a unifying act, this is peacemaking in action we are one we thank you Lord Bless our meal. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, here at our church, we have what's called open communion. You do not need to be a believer or, uh, sorry, a, a member of our church to be able to come and partake. Um, typically, what we do is we say, anyone is, come, is welcome to come and partake of the bread. Jesus welcomed everyone to his table. But some of us uh, have uh, received Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We recognize that he shed his blood for us on the cross. He died for our sins. And we call him Lord. And if that is the case, then we also invite you to take the, the bread and to dip it in the juice as a symbol of your faith in Christ. If you're not at that place yet, please come. And we encourage you to partake of the bread. Everyone partake of the bread. And if you'd also like to express your faith in Christ, then we also invite you to partake of the juice as well. So you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you can uh, consume it as soon as you receive it. So come to any one of these stations uh, now, and we will be waiting here for you.
If you, uh, if you have trouble getting up, um, just kind of wait, wait where you are and we will come to you.